Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a wide-ranging conversation with William Gardner about conservatism, libertarianism, socialism, Marxisms, all the isms you could imagine, and more. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're listening to Canada's most irreverent talk show. And as you've no doubt been aware by now, we do things a little bit different on the Friday show. We tend to assemble a a crack team of panelists to tackle some of the big issues of our time. And occasionally we come across someone who can hold up the weight of an entire panel all by themselves. And William Gardner is certainly one of those people, legendary author and conservative intellectual in Canada. He has some tremendous books like the Trouble with Canada, and it's a much-needed update, The Trouble with Canada Still, The Great Divide, The Trouble with Democracy, The War Against the Family, and many others. And he joins me on the line now, Dr. William Gardner. Bill, it's good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. My pleasure. Now, when we look at your life's work here, and I mean, a number of tremendous books in there, The Great Divide, The Trouble with Canada, the update of that, The, uh, the Trouble to Canada Still or trouble with Canada still, do you find over time that you become more or less optimistic? Oh, man, that's the question of the hour. People ask me how I feel about having spent the last 30 or 40 years um, in this boxing ring. (laughs) And I say, I feel like a man who's been standing on a rock in a leftward drifting sea. And in the distance, I in the fog, I see ships drifting to the left. And I hear voices on deck. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, look, look, there's a man out there drifting to the right. You see, but I haven't moved like an inch from the fundamental positions that I thought were worth arguing for, defending, and debating. But the country has moved a lot. It's become more somnolent, more sleepy more left-oriented, more accepting, and we see it especially with this COVID thing, more accepting of statism, government power and rule, more passive people. It's a little scary. It is. And, and, you know, when I look at trying to win over the hearts and minds, which is, you know, as Margaret Thatcher once said, first you win the argument, then you win the vote, trying to win the, the big arguments in the time. The, the one thing that challenges me more and more is that we are less and less able as a society to even agree on, on first principles. You know, it used to be, for example, on, on free speech. If someone on the right and someone on the left were in disagreement, you could perhaps reason with them by saying, ah, but, you know, policy X would compromise free speech, ergo it's a bad thing, whereas now you, you couldn't even agree that, that free speech is a good thing. And, and I know a lot of your work ha- has put forward a, a first principle that, I, again, I, I think is a very controversial one in Canada today, which is that the family is the fundamental building block of a society. Such a thing is heretical in the modern political discourse, but it still is, I think, tremendously important. Oh, I do too. More important than ever, and I think we're beginning to see the consequences of letting that idea go in the West. Actually, I'm doing a series of videos now. They're available from my own YouTube site on the war against the family. There's kind of an hour on each chapter. Um, And um, it's just shocking to realize that this all began in Sweden in the 50s, as far as the Western world is concerned. I mean, 
never mind communism and fascism and Nazism and all those things. Um, Sweden was supposed to be the middle way. That's what Trudeau called it when he was walking all around with Jean Chrétien, you know, well, we should be imitating Sweden. Neither vulgar American capitalism nor, um, you know, jackboot communism. Sweden's the middle way. And if we follow some of those ways, and this is, I'm quoting Trudeau, we can plant socialism in every province, quote unquote. Uh, and when he began his work, uh, and this is what my article was about, which I think brought you and I together today, you and me together. Um, he had a Machiavellian moment. He had started out thinking that Canada's confederation was going to make it impossible to ever turn Canada into a more socialistic type of uh, government. But after a while, he began to realize that it might be easier because it was already broken up into provinces. And the fact that they have different disagreements all the time about A, B, and C might make it easy to sort of on a one of a one at a time basis convert the whole nation into a more socialistic enterprise. And of course, the Trump card he had in mind was his Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the whole idea behind that was that he could get rid of what he called British style checkerboard federalism forever by imposing a Charter of Rights and Freedoms with unitary principles in it that everyone in the country would have to abide by. And he got it. He got it done in 1982. So my article was about what that meant for us as Canadians. Basically, it meant we got recolonized. You know, we used to bow to the judges in Britain. Now we bow to the judges in Ottawa. You know, what's the difference? Six thousand kilometers. Yeah, but you raise an important point there, and I'll, I'll put up that column of yours on the screen here. The Charter at Forty: How Canada Got Recolonized. I would encourage people to go and, and look at that in, in the Epoch Times. But you are right there, in, in that in a lot of ways, Canada was trying to do that American-style constitutionalism by having a, a constitution that would give a, a form of judicial supremacy. Except the problem is, for Canadians, the U.S. Constitution uh, reasserts the supremacy of the individual, whereas the Canadian constitution does not do that. It, I'm interested in what you're saying actually quite a lot uh, because I'm musing on the possibility of writing an article for Epoch Times comparing the French Declaration, the American Declaration, and the Canadian Charter and trying to explain to people the ways in which this the same and the ways in which they differ. A huge difference because you know when I first started thinking about Canada's Charter and, the, and that article I asked myself how close is what we did to what the Americans have done with their Declaration of Independence and their Bill of Rights, which they tacked onto their constitution to please the states. I think the major difference is, and I'm not sure, done my homework completely yet, but the major difference is that most of the so-called rights uh, in the American constitution are what we call negative rights. There are things that the government can't do to you. Whereas the emphasis and that was feared when it started in 82 of the Canadian charter is positive rights. Here's what the government is going to do to you or is allowed to do to you. For example, equalization payments amongst the provinces. That's something that got written into the charter. It's of a socialistic, you know, Canada is not a socialist country, but it's socialist in top-down style like that, you know, forced equality uh, and forced rights from coast to coast. It is very statist from that point of view. 
without being um, specifically socialistic. I mean, in a socialist country, the government kind of owns everything, you know, and uh, gives dictation from the top. In a socialist style country, it's just some of these coast to coast policies that the government can get away with that are like socialism. I actually argue, and I have dear friends who tell me, we need to go back to classical liberalism. And I say, forget it, it's gone. What do you mean? I say, well, that idea, which you, know, you my imaginary interlocutor here, which you tell me you think is uh, summed up in the American Declaration of Independence and all the rest of it, all that stuff is gone, all that Lockean stuff and even the Burkean stuff is gone. We are living, and I think all the Western democracies have gone this way at faster and slower rates, depending which democracy you're talking about. We're living in an era of libertarian socialism. What? How can it be? I said, well, it's easy. Uh, this whole thing, this whole thing bumped along from the over the last 300 years to a situation where we fell into a uh, contradiction in terms of our fundamental foundation. What contradiction? Well, liberalism has a foundation in liberty, right? Uh, egalitarianism has a foundation in equality. The more liberal we became, the more unequal we became. We developed underclasses of poor people that were not going away. So we had to get into all these socialist style policies to make sure they had a more or less equal life to the rest of us, paying the money, giving them rights to goods and things like that, you know, uh, goodies from the state. Uh, so inevitably we ended up in a kind of conundrum. What were we gonna do about telling people that we had a classical liberal society with in fact, all these inequalities going on, we got to fix them. <laughs> so what theorists decided to do was to split the body politic into two bodies. We're going to have a libertarian body for the individual, and we're going to have a, um, a public body when it comes to national rights that can be enforced coast to coast. So, so the body politic was split into two bodies, private body and public body. And that's what Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms <laughs> is really all about. For example, you have rights to, you have gay rights, you have divorce rights, you have drug rights, you have abortion rights. You have all kinds of individual rights that have to do with you as an individual and your body, you know, your physical rights. But when it comes to whatever the government is, is certain that it can supply equally to everybody through equalization payments and policy, um, then, then we're into like socialist uh, style programs, forced equality from the top down. Canada is now a libertarian socialist nation. It's neither perfect libertarianism nor perfect socialism, far from it. But it's enough of each to say that that's the kind of entity we now live in and all the Western democracies have gone this way. It was smart, Machiavellian. They figured, look, we can't live with the contradiction. We can't live with the idea that we have all these glaring inequalities in a country that's preaching liberty. We have to do something about it. Give them liberty, give them their appetites, give them their bodily freedoms and all those things that they want to indulge in, right? But keep them unified with top-down policy coast to coast from the top. I, I would 
challenge that slightly, and and perhaps we're we're disagree we're, we're agreeing here fundamentally, and perhaps it's just semantics on my part, but but I don't think there is that strong of a libertarian foothold in Canada right now. My my sense has been that you only have liberty to make decisions that fit within the approved values framework set out by the courts and and set out by I'd say broadly the the, the culture here. And I mean we see this in the last couple of years with a number of the COVID lockdown measures. The the libertarians have been losing several of these challenges because your your libertarianism only extends to uh, perhaps have an abortion and have a gay marriage and and do all of these other things. Your libertarianism doesn't extend to not getting vaccinated. Your libertarianism doesn't protect you against a lot of these lockdowns. And and it seems then like like in a lot of ways, it's a very illusory individual liberty that we've upheld. Well, it seems illusory when you spell it out like that. I agree with you. It seems maybe a contradiction to what I'm saying, but I think that what I have said has been going on for 50 years. It's, 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 It's in the woodwork, so to speak, of our nation. All these individual bodily rights are here now. You know, in 1950, they weren't. You couldn't smoke marijuana in public, right? Divorce had to be the consent of both parties. You couldn't just walk in and say to your wife or your husband, I divorce you, like the Muslims do, you know? You couldn't do that. Now you can. So I say marriage is gone because it takes, used to take two to make it, two to break it. Now it's two to make it, one to break it. Libertarian, see? Up to you and your choice. Abortion is about your choice, right? All these things come down to individual choice. It may not apply, as you say, to this crisis we're going through now with respect to COVID. That's because, you know, the whole idea of public safety has overwhelmed everything, including all the crazy exaggerations that we have to live with. But once it ebbs and it goes and COVID is gone and all the rest of it, back to square one, which is a libertarian socialist society. In other words, um, we give the people enough of these personal appetitive wants that they have that they can express anytime they feel like. There are no laws against them anymore, right? And they're not going to complain about egalitarianism, socialism, and any other aspect of their lives. They just put up with it, pay more taxes. What's the poster boy for this? It's Sweden, highest tax rate in the world, right? Most governments' services in the world for a free society. And here's the conundrum, and I asked my libertarian friends this. We have arguments about it. Can you explain why the Swedes seem so happy with their libertarian socialism? Why are they so happy with it? I can't explain it. It shouldn't be true. You know, 57, 60, 62% tax rates and all that kind of stuff. But if you ask the average Swede, and I did last week, I contacted a fellow, he's 88 now, but he wrote a great book years ago. His name is David Popino, a professor from, I forget where, Johns Hopkins, I think. He wrote a great book on the breakdown of the family. And Sweden was the poster boy leading that attack on the natural family. It was, it was a huge experiment in social policy in Sweden. Was, the book was called Disturbing the Nest. So I thought, you know, I'm going to try to see if he's still around. So I Googled for him and I found him. And you know where he is? Hey, he's living in Sweden. <laughs> Sweden was one of the big chapters in his book. He said, I can't explain it. These people love it. And if you ask them about taxes, you know what they'll say? They'll say, I would pay more tax for the life I have. It's great. Government does everything for us, you know. In other words, you know, the baby's born, it's government daycare. The baby goes to government schools. Young married couples couples get to buy cheap uh, newlywed housing. In some of those buildings, by the way, uh, there's apartments with no no dining room. 
you know, they have a common dining room. Everybody comes into the common dining room to eat, kind of like in university, you know, <laughs> when you go from your residence to the, the mess hall. <laughs> they push you together because they don't want the family ideal to be strengthened in Sweden, see? Their whole idea was to break it down because it created differences which flew in the face of their socialist egalitarian ideology, which is that all citizens should be the same, do the same, and be treated the same. We want all women to leave the home, take their kids to government daycare, go get their jobs, support themselves independently from their husbands or whoever they happen to be living this. I can't say husbands, by the way, because marriage is shot in Sweden. So they don't even talk about uh, divorce anymore. You know the term they use? Couple dissolution. Wow. There is no divorce because people are not getting married, roughly speaking. I mean, it's very low. So they just... Statistically speaking, they talk about the rate of couple dissolution, which, by the way, happens to be very high over there. It's almost as if, well, you get tired of your partner. This thing is over. Go find another one. Yeah. And then, well, you've got some countries, I think Spain notably, that don't even put mother and father on the birth certificate. I think it was uh, progenitor A and progenitor B or, or something like that. So you you are right, though. And, and you know, what you're describing in Sweden, I, I think, comes down to the old input and outcome or input and output forms of freedom, where someone could say, well, yes, things are, are great in Cuba. They're very free because the government gives them X, Y, and Z, except it, it's not a, a true freedom in, in that sense. But you're right. I mean, the Scandinavian... Uh, example is key because a lot of times on a number of just personal well-being indicators these countries do rank higher than canada higher than the united states it's 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 embarrassing for true libertarian thinkers in the west why why they like it they're not supposed to like it people are not supposed to like the state controlling almost everything in their lives (laughs) but these people do one of the there are many results of it and there was a book written years ago by a fellow named Roland Huntford, it was called, the title is The New Totalitarians. It was a really interesting book. And I think almost everything he said uh, has come true. Like in the statistical evidence is there now. This was like 35 years ago. It's all there now, the evidence. The marriage breakdown, the laziness at work, people calling in sick, I don't know, 20% of all Swedes call in sick every week or something like that. I'm picking the numbers here. I don't have them at my fingertip. But it's a it's a larger number than in any other any other country. You know, so the work productivity and all that stuff has fallen away and and um, the expectations. However, there's something everybody's talking about today with respect to the Scan- Scandinavian countries, and they call it the Nordic paradox. Remember the phrase, what is the Nordic paradox? Well, it's really interesting. It has turned out through honest studies of all this huge revolutionary change in the kind of public psyche in Sweden, that one of the reasons they wanted to do all this was to get rid of what they thought were the biologically determined natural differences between men and women. They said, no, they're not natural. It's all social. They're just here because of social pressures, stereotypes, all that kind of language, you know, and we can get rid of it by changing the stereotype. We're going to force them out of their homes. We're going to we're going to make it embarrassing. We're going to refer to the housewife who wants to stay home, the homemaker, as a parasite. And we'll use that language in public, you know, that kind of thing. Shame people. So they've been doing that for 45, 50 years now. But the Nordic paradox is that the more that they equalize the sexes in the Scandinavian countries, get this, the more different they become. In other words, 
if you equalize all the policies and the goodies that they get, they decide, oh, well, this is great. I'm getting all this free stuff or whatever. Now I can do what I want. <laughs> and they become naturally biologically expressive in a way that they maybe were embarrassed about before. Uh, this is interesting. I have a neighbor who uh, had uh, three girls. And, you know, we had, my wife and I had five kids and two of them were boys. So after a few years, our neighbor turned to my wife and said, I've got some boy toys. Would you like to have them? And so my wife said, sure. So she brings over, you know, the fire truck, the dump truck, the Jeep, the stuff that they play with in the sandbox, whatever, you know. And my wife says, my gosh, she said, how old are these toys? And she said, oh, she says they're four years old. My wife says they're brand new. I know, she said, my girls never played with them. And then she told her this story. She says, you know what happened? She said, the first day I bought this fire truck, I gave it to my daughter and she was, yippee, this is great. Wow, I got a fire truck. When I went up at night to kiss her goodnight, when she went to bed, the fire, fire truck was in the doll bed with a blanket up to the cab. <laughs> True story. <laughs> That's actually qu quite amusing. And it is interesting that, that for all that society right now and a lot of the academics and political elites and, and media try to talk about the need to de-gender the world, they forget that a lot of these norms and some cases uh, you may call them stereotypes exist because they stem from a lot of very natural impulses. Now, I'm of the mind that if a little girl wants to play with a fire truck or a boy wants to play with some conventional uh, quote-unquote girl toy have at it, but but they gravitate towards the ones that we tend to view as norms for a, a reason. So uh, why does that persist then, I guess? Well, I'll tell you, it, pers it persists from the politics of envy, which really has always been part of human societies, but it really got a kick and it was made kind of politically official uh, with Karl Marx and his uh, uh, communist manifesto. In, in that book, well, by the way, I, I'd like to go back, but we don't have time. It, it began with Plato. You know, Plato wrote his Republic. In the Republic, he outlined his plan for the totalitarian society in which uh, no parent should know his child, nor child his parents. Uh, the children would be taken away from the parents and raised by the state. Uh, the women would all be held in common by the men. You could have sex with anybody you wanted. Right. In other words, they wanted to break all the connections, the family connections, so that Plato could end up with a perfect egalitarian society, free of all rancor, free of all anger, free of all differences between people that caused, uh, which were, he thought were the cause of human dissension. So the Republic was the kind of template for this going forward. Well, Marx certainly knew about that. So did Rousseau, by the way. In fact, Rousseau. <laughs> Rousseau, when he was walking around and somebody criticized him for why he dropped all his five children off at the orphanage, where we know that they probably died because no one's ever found in any traces of them. He said, he said, I thought I was a child of Plato's Republic. That's how he explained it. Well, then you get to Marx in 1848 with his Communist Manifesto, in which he says the abolition of private property. OK, fine. He's a communist, but also the abolition of the natural family. We have to get rid of the natural family. And in my own book, The War Against the Family, there's all kinds of evidence for how this has popped up again with modern radical feminists, for example, who say that there will never be equality until we get rid of the natural family. And one of the reasons is what you're just pointing to, which is that people do express natural likes and dislikes by and large. So Marx thought, I'm going to get rid of this, right? So the way he decided to get rid of it was 
in his manifesto and later his buddy Engels, who wrote a whole tract against the family and against marriage and so on, was persuading people that human condition is the way it is uh, because of oppression. There's always an oppressor class and an oppressed class. If we can just persuade people that the whole world always divides into oppressors and oppressed, then it doesn't matter whether it's capitalists and workers or you know professors and students or generals and soldiers or parents and children. We've got to persuade everybody that the world is the way it is through oppression. And that really took off so that today, if you're talking about um, radicalism and our society here today, you're talking about um, modified forms of Marxist, Marxism on that theme. I don't like to use the word Marxism, but that's kind of where it got its big push in the 19th century. I don't like to use it because most people don't know what it is, have never read a word of Marx and you know why do that. But the basic theme of his work was that uh, you are a victim. You always have oppressors and victims wherever you look. And so the way to get the perfect society is to get rid of the oppressors. And that's what communism was all about, which he referred to, by the way, and described as the perfect democracy. One of the theories I would put forward on that, and you, you sort of touched on it there, is that family is one of the only units that would be held up in, in greater significance to the average person than government. We, we see this now when it comes to the vaccines uh, for children. A lot of parents that are saying, no, 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 you know, you can do what you want to me, but you can't touch my kids. That, that's sort of the argument. So it stands to reason that if you want to strengthen the power of the state, you have to undermine the power of the family. Yes. Well, the biggest reason that Plato came to, and it's the same with Marx, is that the family generates the notion of private property. They want to create wealth, you know, vegetables, food, animals, whatever, and wealth for their own family. They don't want to create it for their neighbors. Good heavens, the neighbor's drinking uh, beer all day and he's lazy as can be. Why would, I want to, why would I want to give him some of my sheep, right? Or some of my tax dollars? No, I'm going to focus on my family. Now, these are very, very strong feelings. And Plato's complaint about the family was that the private family creates human difference. And it's difference, of course, that egalitarians want to get rid of. They want to get rid of all differences. And, you know, some families are smart. Some are stupid. Some are lazy. Some are hardworking. Some are rich. Some are poor. You know, and of course, radical leftists make a joke about all this. I remember the funny line, actually, uh, that some French guy came up with, I don't know, a 50 years ago. He said, I know you people, you freedom lovers. He said, you say that even the rich are free to sleep under the bridges, <laughs> you know, which of course they're not going to do. But his point was, you know, your freedom doesn't apply to everybody equally because they have different conditions in life. So we have to change the conditions. Well, so that's what Plato was doing. That's what Marx was doing. That's what modern radical feminists are doing. They want to get rid of the conditions of traditional marriage, so-called patriarchy, the natural family, and the really radical ones, um, and some of them have been very influential in Canada, by the way, were themselves former Marxists um, who were dictating policy to our government, which under Trudeau in particular, but even some of those who followed him, have swallowed it whole. You know, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, most of the policies they were pushing like national daycare, and even Brian Mulroney, who was supposed to be a conservative, when I got going thinking about politics, he was into a national daycare scheme, which he said was going to cost $4 billion. 
Now, this was not for the truly, what I call the truly needy, who maybe we should be helping. <laughs> this was for everybody. So the Rosedale woman with the mink coat and the tennis racket, she gets to drop her kid off free at this national daycare place, you see. So I got really upset with this and I wrote a letter to Mulroney. And I said, you're too pink. If you don't get more blue, you're not gonna see any more of my green. <laughs> so, you know, my money donations. So anyway, that ended up in the Globe and Mail somehow. I don't know how. The, the Rosedale woman with a fur coat and a tennis racket. I think that's probably the best way to sum up uh, the, the demographic you were uh, you were really? going for yeah. there, Bill. Yeah, yeah, and her right to free daycare, see? The word yeah. right, you know? Now, by the way, our own charter, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You do not see the word obligation in that charter. The word duty doesn't appear anywhere. <clears throat> and it's interesting because when Western man, so to speak, and woman, if you like, most of them were men, started thinking about how to create these charters and these constitutions, there was a tremendous amount of fuss, like over the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. There was huge fuss. They had a huge vote on this thing should contain obligations. People have obligations, too, and not just rights. And it got voted down in a only slightly lopsided vote among a thousand of the uh, people voting on th this thing in the French uh, situation. But you see, here we are, 2022. You don't see the word obligation in our charter. You don't see the word duty. It's as if there aren't any. I want to go back to how we started. You talking about, uh, you know, people perhaps viewing you as, as drifting to the right, even though you're the one staying put and, and everyone else is, is drifting to the left here. You, in, in the time we've been chatting, ha have cited uh, Rousseau, Plato, Machiavelli, a, a number of books. I'm going to add to the reading list once we, we get off the call here. But at, at the risk of, of trying to toot your horn a little bit, uh, or maybe I will just do it outright, you're one of the leading conservative intellectuals in this country, but it's a very small group. I mean, the number of people in the right in this country that really try to advance, not just on particular issues or uh, political agendas, but advance an intellectual basis for conservatism is a, a tiny, tiny, tiny number. So why do you think the right in, in this country has failed so much to produce this generation of great thinkers that I, I think we could greatly benefit from? Well, it's an interesting question, Andrew, and... Uh... Uh, I've always felt, and in fact, in all my books, what I've tried to do is what I'm just going to explain. Uh, sometimes when I'm giving a public speech, you know, someone will come up, come up to me afterwards and talk about how terrible these liberals are, meaning they're bad people. And I said, no, they're not bad people. I said, they're good people with bad ideas. And your job is to change their ideas. And you can only do that if you, give, if you can give them a higher ideal than the one that's motivating them right now. You know, that's the objective. And that's what I've tried to do in all my books is to give people, people a higher ideal than the one they've been operating on as a so-called liberal. Most of them couldn't even define what a true liberal is. But, but anyway, that's what I think is the important thing for conservatives to do. And if there only one person came to a talk I was asked to give, I would still give the talk because you never know who that person is and you never know what kind of effect they're going to have on the whole nation someday. Maybe nothing, but maybe something very powerful, you know? So if you can get them going on the right ideas, and I can't tell you, I don't mean to boast here, but today I got two emails from people I've never met 
who just wrote me, found me through my website and said, oh, I met you 25 years ago, whatever. And then I bought your books and, you know, and so on. And they explained their journey from traditional leftism, which is what they all were taught, even in lower school, uh, to becoming a more independent, free-thinking, conservative thinker, you know? And so if my books can do that, I'm happy. Is it enough? No. This thing's been like a tsunami washing over us, you know, and it's still rolling. But, you know, you keep fighting, right? I have an American friend who said something very inspiring. She said, listen, we have a duty to be optimists. And I, I believe that. And it's true. That's the only way I can operate anyway. I always think there's a way to win, you know, to win the war of ideas, too. So to go back to that ship analogy, how do we get that ship moving back in the right direction? Well, that's part of the tsunami. It's drifting leftward for a reason, because that's the way things are now. Why is that so? It's because the left is very clever at, uh, I'll tell you a story about this in a moment. It's very clever at seizing uh, the tools of uh, leftism, uh, radio, the universities, the lower schools, the teachers' colleges, all these institutions, it's like uh, when Gramsci, the Italian communist, when he was in jail, he wrote his prison notebooks. And I, it's a terrible book, but I think it was in that book, which I tried to read, but it's, you know, it's like indigestible. But in that book somewhere, there's this business about the long march through the institutions. Well, his notion was, we're not going to go to war again to win communism, you know. We're going to change the institutions. And that began when I was at Stanford. I went to Stanford University. You know, the motto of Stanford University is still, get this, where the wind of freedom blows. Well, I'll tell you, it's in German, you know, but the wind of freedom does not blow at Stanford anymore. The wind of oppression blows at Stanford, you know, racial oppression, bigotry, gender oppression, everything you could name. You know, the oppressions of true history is happening. Stanford has been, a, I'm embarrassed to say, because I loved my time there, but I was there when it was free. But it was beginning to change, you know, beginning to change. Like the oppression narrative was in the air. I had a really good friend. I'm a, I'm, I used to be a runner, you may know. I was ran in the Olympic Games in 64. So when I got to Stanford in 65, I was still running for Canada. And so one of the guys I trained with, who eventually became a Rhodes Scholar, he went over to a Safeway store one day because he needed some dinner and he stole a steak. And I said, Dell, what the hell are you doing? Oh, come on, he said. Capitalists are all stealing from us. I'm just taking it back. That was his notion, was he was justified in taking a stake from Safeway because capitalism had been stealing wealth from him and his family for decades. What's your problem, Bill? You know, I mean, I was disgusted, but you couldn't make a dent in his thinking. Well, Gramsci would have been proud of him. Pardon me? Gramsci would have been proud of him. <laughs> and at the time, there was a professor there of American literature. I, I enrolled in his course because... He wrote a good book on American literature and I took a PhD in literature and philosophy and all that. And anyway, he, he comes into the class the first day and he says, listen, he says, if you want to know about American literature, he says, read my book. Now let's talk about Karl Marx. In other words, this is the way these people take over these institutions. They infiltrate. And, um, and I had a wonderful dear professor friend there who ran something. He initiated and ran something called the Stanford Conservative Forum. Hey, you're gonna love the story. So we called him Prof, because you know, there's the Prof. Uh, and, um, and he invited uh, William F. Buckley to come and speak at Stanford 
at his forum at uh, Tresider Union there, I think. It holds about a thousand people. So the news got out that William Buckley was coming to Stanford to speak. Oh my God, you know. The, the Palo Alto, which is the town that Stanford's in, the Palo Alto radio station, the Stanford radio station, the Stanford newspaper, everything was just, it was like everything was burning because of the news that William Buckley, this horrible conservative thinker was coming to Stanford. This was in the 60s, you said, right? This, this would have been uh, 1967. So, so this was before when a lot of people really started to become aware of this trend on campuses, but, but it was still very much real. Okay. okay. Yeah, but listen what happened. So Buckley comes to the campus and there's an uproar everywhere and the prof sets him down. He says, listen, Bill, he says, we got an issue here. There's a lot of upset in there and I'm worried about your safety. Uh, maybe we should cancel. And Buckley says, no way, we're not going to cancel. And then the prof says, okay, well, then I have an idea, he says. Why don't we do this? There'll be a podium on the stage. The hall is already oversubscribed. It's going to be more than a thousand people there. I'll go to the podium. And uh, excuse me, neither of us will go to the podium. I will not introduce you. Uh, but when I think it's time, I'm just going to like go like this. And you'll come out of the wings. You'll come out of the wings, go right to the podium and start your speech. Don't give them a chance to start booing you. And, you know, if I don't introduce you, that won't give them a chance either. So there was, you can imagine the tension in the air. So this, the night comes and the prop goes like this and Buckley comes striding fast out of the wings, goes right to the podium. He pulls his speech out of his jacket because he always spoke from a, tight, a printed copy. He never spoke ad lib, a great speaker too. <laughs> but he puts it down on the podium and a thousand people stood up and gave him a 10 minute standing ovation. <laughs> It was unbelievable. He was just floored. And so was the prop. They just went, oh, my God, what just happened here? You know, the prop said, William, he said, he called me William. He said, the lesson is that it was five or six people who created all the bonfire. The, the two guys at the Stamper Daily newspaper, the two guys at the Stamper radio station and so on. They, they, in other words, they seized, they seized the political instruments that were essential to create the fuss. Just like you're at your microphone right now. If they were here, they would come in and tell you nicely to leave. If you didn't, they'd shoot you. Yeah, I was going to say, they might not tell me all that nicely. You never know. <laughs> yeah, well, they start that way. Yeah. Then if you, you know, then you're done. And they've got the microphone. Well, that's all you need. And, and I, I, I studied uh, the takeover of Eastern European nations by Russia, uh, by the USSR, as it was known then, uh, from a great professor at university. And it, he made it clear that this was the case in every one of these countries. You just get those um, those instruments for spreading the word, and you've got everybody. All the sheep wow. will follow. Yeah, that's what happened at Stanford, and that's what happens in our country. Look at our universities. Uh, and they're very open about it. If you ask a professor at York, where I used to teach, uh, what's your political persuasion? Who do you vote for? They will always say, uh, New Democrat or liberal or something like that. I mean, the number of conservatives on most Canadian campuses is like what, three, four percent of the faculty. And they're all shrinking, hiding, you know, afraid to speak up, especially today. So it's been done already. Gramsci was successful in his uh, suspicion that if you can take over the institutions, you can run the country. My daughter went to the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. She said there was a guy sitting beside her. He was a 50-year-old man, immigrant to Canada from 
Romania, which used to be a communist country. And uh, she didn't like what she saw. Her first few weeks at OISE was terrible brainwashing and indoctrination about all sorts of things, you know, gay rights and feminism, God knows what. And so she wanted to, you know, put her hand up and complain. And he leans over to her and he says, Ruthann, her name is Ruthann. He calls her Ruthann. He said, shut up. She goes, what? He said, shut up. He said, he told her he was from Romania. He said, when I was in Romania, he said, I translate Orwell's book, Animal Farm, into a Romanian language, he said. And I had to escape Romania, the shooting at my back. Shooting wow. at my back for translating that book. He says, what is happening here in Canada, he said? Exactly what we did. Exactly what happened in Romania. Same words, same sentence structure, same concepts. It's all like a nightmare to me watching it happen over again in, in your Canada. But he said, you can't do anything about it. Nice try, you know. Wow. I, I'm reminded of, of John O'Sullivan's uh, famous wisdom, O'Sullivan's first law, or as he told me once, O'Sullivan's only law, which was that any institution that is not explicitly conservative will over time become explicitly liberal. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, that people on the right need to know you're always going to be swimming upstream, but you can't stop swimming because then you're, you're certainly going to uh, to lose. I, so I know swimming, you were a runner at heart, but uh, you were a decathlete, so I'm going to assume you can do anything. And, and you've certainly been swimming against the current, and we are all the better for it. Uh, William Gardner, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank, thanks, Andrew, very much. That was author, former Olympian, Olympic medalist, as a matter of fact, William Gardner here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Such a, a font of wisdom and insight. And I, I truly meant what I said at the end there, that uh, the conservative movement and indeed the country are better off thanks to his work. So if you haven't checked out any of his books, I, I really enjoyed The Great Divide, which was one we I wanted to get to it. We just ran out of time talking about, you know, Gramsci and Rousseau and all that. But it was talking about a lot of those first principle problems that I t uh, spoke about earlier with uh, basically the left and right just fundamentally not being able to agree on, on certain things. And also the trouble with Canada and its update are very enduring. So do check those out. In the meantime, we've got to wrap things up there. My thanks to you all for tuning into the show. We'll talk to you soon here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.